0: All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Empire. Not a normal episode of Empire coming up here. So Santi's traveling today. We're going to do a roundup, um, but we actually decided to switch it up. So I was having a call with this guy, Adam Brotman. He was the creator of Starbucks Loyalty Program. He was co-CEO of J.Crew. Created, I mean, the Starbucks Loyalty Program that has, I think, 60 million members today. It's the most uh, impressive, the most baked out, the best uh, loyalty rewards program, and I—I I think you could argue the world. Um, he now runs a company called Forum Three. They just raised 10 million bucks. They created Starbucks Odyssey, Starbucks's uh, NFT rewards program. Um, they've also worked with a bunch of other clients, helping them develop their NFT reward program. I think you guys know. I've—I've I've been pretty skeptical on like these big brands, these big traditional brands coming into crypto. So I thought it'd be fun to record the conversation with with Adam. Um, that takes up the first like 15 or 20 minutes of this conversation, and then uh, if you want to hear a deeper interview, get back to kind of the more crypto native stuff. We launched a new uh, research podcast called Zero X Research, and the guys came out with a really really great uh, podcast with the uh, founder of DYDX, Antonio. And so the first 20 minutes of this podcast is with Adam, who runs Forum Three, used to run J Crew, used to run Starbucks' rewards program. Worked directly with Howard Schultz, CEO of uh, of, of Starbucks, um, and built out their whole NFT platform. So that's the first like 15, 20 minutes. Then we get into the DYDX interview. If you don't care about either of those things, that's totally fine. And you just want to round up for the week. Bell Curve is your podcast this week. So head over to the Bell Curve feed. Uh, Vance, Michael, uh, Mike, and I do just your normal weekly roundup on that feed today. So that drops later today at like 2 or 3 p.m. So, anyways. Hopefully that wasn't too confusing. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this Starbucks interview. I thought it was pretty interesting. Kind of opened my eyes to a bunch of stuff. Uh, if you want to skip that, you can listen to the DYDX episode. So anyways, now let's get into it. See you guys on the other side. Uh, really exciting conversation today. Uh, speaking with Adam Brotman of Forum 3. Adam, before Forum 3, uh, was president and co-CEO of J.Crew actually. And before that, ran global retail ops at Starbucks. Uh, so pretty interesting guest. Not your... Uh, your normal empire guests running a a DeFi protocol or uh, running a crypto fund, but really, really interesting uh, retail background. So Adam, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, really excited about this. Um, All right, so you're now uh, running Forum 3. You guys just announced this $10 million raise, but I wanted to bring you on because we've been talking a lot about kind of what retail brands are starting to do in crypto. And you, my understanding is that you either led or you were pretty influential in helping Starbucks come on board with Starbucks Odyssey and crypto. So I think I'd love to just start there and just hear like the why behind that story.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, that that story really starts um, in the summer of 2021, believe it or not, because I, I got into uh, learning about blockchain and Web3 and crypto and NFTs all at the beginning of 2021 when my friend Andy Sack asked me to help him uh, be, be an advisor essentially to his uh, blockchain-based uh, Web3 fund that he was putting together. So I I went on my own learning journey, and when I stumbled across these non-fungible tokens, uh, digital collectibles, whatever you want to call them, I was it was in it was in February and uh, March of 2021, and I was like, wow, of all the stuff with blockchain that gets me excited as a as a consumer marketer and uh, consumer brand. Uh, Uh, digital executive, if you will. I I was like, whoa, this is really interesting because these these digital assets are both an asset, a collectible, but also can form a a form of an access pass because they're uh, they're non-fungible, you possess them. And so community and uh, loyalty and a bunch of things could sort of coalesce around this digital asset. And I'd never seen anything like that. So I in the summer of 2021, I actually emailed the CEO of Starbucks and said, look, I'm not chief digital officer anymore. Uh, I was actually the uh, CEO of a company called Brightloom that was a Starbucks-sponsored company. And I was like, look, if I were you, I would look into these NFTs, I'd look into these digital collectibles from a from a utility perspective and from a loyalty perspective. And it opened up a conversation that ultimately didn't go anywhere until Howard Schultz came back onto the scene for his third tour of duty as CEO uh, in early 2022. And by that point, Andy Sack and I, who had been working on this fund together, had created a company called Forum 3. That It was sort of a side company that I was working on while I was at Brightloom. And we were getting into this thesis we had about digital collectibles as an incredible storytelling and loyalty mechanism. And we were working with the author Ben Mesrick, and we were working with the Boston Globe. And Howard Schultz was like, hey, I'm I'm bringing some of the band back together at Starbucks and I'm coming back and you know, my, my team and I had a good run for 10 years as chief digital officer at Starbucks working on what is today this, you know, really important ecosystem they have around their app and their loyalty program. And he was like, look, would you tell me more about what you and Andy are working on at Forum Three, tell me more about why you guys are so excited about digital collectibles as a brand." engagement and loyalty tool. And we got into it. And, you know, it was like a red pilling session over like three days. And um and he's like, would you guys, you know, come in. Adam, would you come back as chief digital officer, et cetera, and and um and or would, you know, can I hire Form Three to work with our team to architect and develop a web three strategy that takes advantage of the thesis? And we of course Andy and I were excited to do that. So that was in April of twenty twenty two, this year. And for the last six months, we've been working closely with the Starbucks team—some you know, of my old teams, some new people—just a big cross-functional team at Starbucks. That are led by the rewards team, by the way, because right away you think about it: Starbucks has a you know, industry-leading loyalty program. We're coming in saying, digital, blockchain-based digital collectibles can be an incredible loyalty tool and storytelling tool and brand engagement tool. So the loyalty team at Starbucks was the primary champion under the CMO Brady Brewer and Kendra, and then. Ryan Butts, who's the VP of Loyalty, that team was amazing. They were instantly able to sort of grok the opportunity once we started advising and explaining to them you know, how this could work. And and together, Forum Three and the Starbucks cross-functional internal team started to put together an architect a plan for Odyssey, and that's what's getting rolled out, you know, now this week. Yeah,
0: and so. All right. So you, so you led this, you led the design when you were there, like led the design of Starbucks's mobile, like order and like pay system, their app and rewards program. When I think about Starbucks reward, it's like, it is the most successful loyalty program in retail. It, 50, 60, I don't know the real number, 60 million memberships worldwide. Something like that drives probably half the business. Like just this, this incredible loyalty rewards program. Why yeah. do you need uh like, why why, like what's your pitch to, the board or the team when you're like, all right, we need these NFTs and they're like, okay, well we don't. Cause we already built this incredible loyalty re- rewards program. Why, why, yeah. why do we need NFTs here?
1: Yeah. A couple of thoughts. One great question. And you're right about everything you said, except I think that, and this is a testament to Starbucks and their brand DNA and Howard Schultz's leadership and the current, you know, team under Brady and Kendra and Ryan and, 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 you know, there's a great team under the loyalty team there. They, they don't just stand still. Like if you're not innovating, you're dying. If you're not moving faster to understand the pace of change inside your organization to, to make sure it's it's faster, faster than what's happening outside. Like you could be leading one day and you could be dead the next day. I mean, just, you know, to be cliche about it, you know, ask MySpace, you know, et cetera. So like there's, there's you can be on top of the world. If you cannot rest on your laurels. And a lot of that, by the way, was imprinted in that DNA of being innovative and moving fast is imprinted into the culture at Starbucks by you know from the top, right? You know, obviously from Howard Schultz and and others. And um, so it's not it's notice how I was like, hey, you should do this thing, even though you're industry leading, because to me, where the world's going is that the consumer is changing. The consumer wants to have more control of its own data. The consumer wants to be more participatory in the brands it loves. It does in fact, it doesn't want to be a consumer. It wants to be an owner, a participant, a community member. It wants to be part of the story of the brand. That's the, particularly for Gen Z and millennials. But I just think in general, like we live in this hyper digital world, and the consumer's moving into a different mindset. And so, for Starbucks, the opportunity is to build a layer on top of the loyalty program. Notice Odyssey. When you hear about it, it's not. It's not a different loyalty program it's not a replacement of its loyalty program it's taking advantage of the foundational assets that you have you know tens of millions of engaged customers that um, already have a login already love the brand already are frequenting it so why can't you give them a kind of meet them where they are to be to give them rewards and in and engagement, that's not just this like linear like I spend money I get discounts I spend money I get discounts. Now, don't get me wrong, I spend money I get convenience and discounts. It's so important that it's table stakes. Like you said, it's it's the majority of the business. Um, so you know, don't you dare take it away, right? It's foundational, but it's not enough. Like you've got to keep innovating, you got to keep growing. So you know, but digital collectibles give Starbucks and other brands an opportunity to do is say, great, I can take. I can actually manufacture, so to speak, on the blockchain, a a digital asset that also conveys a, a, an aura of storytelling and collectability, but has some kind of utility. It ha, you know, it's got fun, it's got it's got engagement built into it, it's got metadata, and it's got and it can be an access pass to amazing rewards. Now, in the case of Odyssey, we went pretty far with this and created a whole game layer on top of the rewards program that infused digital collectibles, points, rewards. Like we didn't. We didn't just you know dip our toe in, if you will, um, and so I, I think that's the long-winded way of answering why, why a brand can, why a brand should be thinking about innovating on its loyalty program? because my guess is today a loyalty program at most brands is going to be considered somewhat linear and stale. and secondly, like how you can use digital collectibles to sort of you know add on to your loyalty program without having to throw out the foundational work you've already done..
0: Hmm. It's really, I mean, it's really interesting. Like, you know, it's funny, man, because I I, I think I'm so biased from the 2016, 2017 crowd class of like crypto and, and blockchain that so that was the time when like, you know, you it's like Walmart is moving their supply chain onto the blockchain with IBM. It was like very enterprise blockchain 2017. And I think I have I have this bias that like, when I see these big brands come into crypto, I'm like, this is that. This is today's version of those brands coming into blockchain. But it, but it's interesting hearing you explain this because there really is this deep thesis behind it.
1: Yeah, it's not. It's a great point. I've, I I wasn't into crypto back then. I wish I was. I mean, I I'm fascinated by blockchain, and I've tried to study it best I can. And you're. I remember reading about that sort of blockchain, not Bitcoin, sort of era, and. Um, yeah, I'm not saying that that's not an interesting idea, but that's actually just a skeuomorphic way of thinking about like a ledger or a database or skeu- Like I, uh, to me, the fundamental, I'll, so I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to show you what a kind of a blockchain geek I can try and be. So I love that Satoshi, he, she, or they, I love that they invented a way to create a digital asset that's self-sovereign and possessable and ownable. Like that's a major, like that, that was a huge breakthrough because like we use digital media right now in our life every day, and we do digital commerce every day, but it's not a normal thing for an average person to think about a digital asset. And so what happens with a lot of digital assets is they become cryptocurrencies and they become speculative. And there's a whole, like, we can talk for hours about what happens with what people typically think of as crypto. But if you just get back to the basics of like what Bitcoin did, is it created this concept of a ownable possessable you know trustless immutable digital asset that you can own that's incredible that's it just stop there and be like and if it can be branded and it can be a form of identity so therefore it can it can double as an access pass you now get the best of all worlds you get this like thing that you can own that might be covetable and have intrinsic value because it's collectible because it's got artificial scarcity, it's got maybe some brandability, and it means it's got some rarity traits. So you may have a personal reason that you want to collect that one thing because you like it or it's interesting to you or it's rare, but it can but it can have utility on top of that that acts like digital media. Like that combination is just like really amazing. And so that's to me for enterprises, it's understanding that. And the reason most consumers aren't talking about it and thinking about it is because To be honest, wallets are really hard to use right now. And so we have to sort of bridge into self-sovereignty to where like an average human being on this planet, when you start talking about a browser extension, a wallet, cryptocurrency, their eyes glaze over right now. But if you can get them to a place where it's like, hey, you can participate by owning this digital collectible that has utility, you know, and they can understand you and they can do it like, millions and millions and I'd even say hundreds of millions of consumers will be like that's cool like yeah I'd like that like why wouldn't I want that particularly if it's free like I'm not I'm I'm not even getting into any speculative value appreciation stuff like put that all to the side like when you talk about building a physical collectible as a brand like a sneaker or a bobblehead or a trading card or a a, a unique piece of merchandise if you're a brand like whatever like you don't like you don't talk about it as a brand as like, oh, and it's going to be worth a bunch of money someday. You talk about it as like a covetable thing that the that your consumers will love. In this case, it's digital. So it can have so much more interesting capability, but still be covetable. And it has to have, you have to give the person the ability to sell it if they, or buy one on an open market, if it's truly ownable and possessable. So to me, those are the things that are sort of unlocks for
0: consumers and enterprises and the like. Hmm. Fill in on how you think about utility. Because when, when I think about, so the, so NFTs in my mind have always been, there is no utility. It's a story about a collectible. And there's like, and, it, it, and it's really the story of collectibles over time. It's like my rookie year Barry Bonds card doesn't have utility, except for the utility it brings to me. And there's like 110,000 other people who just love that Barry Bonds rookie card. And so, and so we all think it's valuable. And then that translated into like, the early version of NFTs, which was like punks and like bored apes and like doodles and things like that, which there really wasn't much utility. It was just like, it's the story behind it. But it sounds like you're thinking about both the storytelling and you're saying, look, you can have the storytelling, but also the, there's utility on top of it.
1: Correct. You nailed it. So to me, I've been saying for a year now, what I love, what gets me excited about NFTs, digital collectibles, blockchain based digital collectibles is that. They are a collectible that's digital that also can double as an access pass, an access pass to any other utility that the creator wants to put into it. So, what, So yes, it will have some utility, hopefully, as a collectible, like, like you just said, emotional, intrinsic value, either personal or because it's rare or whatever. But that's like a baseball card, like you said. But the fact that it can also double as an access pass to have continual utility programmed into it by what the creator, whatever they want. And by the way, it's not one and done because it's digital. It can continually innovate and there can even be collaborations. You could The utility could kind of come to life a year later when another brand or another artist decides to collaborate with the token holder and give it additional utility. So it's got infinite ongoing real world utility in terms of like you can... Use you can token gate access to merch, to experiences, to communities, to things that are real, beyond just the intrinsic collectability of the item itself. And it's the combination of those two things that I've, I'm, you know, I'm I'm going to dedicate my career to. I just think it's interesting.
0: Do you think every consumer? So, uh, have you been following what what Nike's doing? Right, they've got, they got they've RTF KT now. They've they just launched uh, their NFT platform with Dot swoosh. They're selling yes. sneakers for 50 bucks. Which Very I think, familiar. Yeah, genius idea. Um, very
1: cheap yeah they're yeah. i I'm, I'm a big fan of what they're doing
0: do you think that every consumer brand in the in the next decade will launch some will will do so, we'll have an nft strategy basically yes i do and the reason i say
1: that is um it's called, you know i i don't take it lightly that it's called web 3 for a reason like i that would be like asking somebody in 1994 do you think every brand will have a website now in 1994 that was not a that was, that was a legit question, just like your question just now is completely legit. Like in 1994, in fact, ha- a lot of people would have said no to that question. I don't think every... not nah, a, br- a website's not for every brand. It's only going to be for newspapers. Or it's right, only going to be... Information this. platforms
0: like the yeah, New York exactly. Times should put their newspaper on the internet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, and here I am having a video conference call with you uh, amongst 60 tabs on a browser. Like we are having a web-based recorded podcast conversation over a web browser right now, which wouldn't even have like occurred to us. I think of, I don't, I don't think of, I don't think about digital collectibles and blockchain based things like, like NFTs as being, I get excited about the technology of it, about the possibilities of it. Like, I don't think about it as like the thing, the NFT per se. I think it's like, oh, this is an interesting way to, th- I mean, just like when the iPhone came out and I was at, you know, I was at Starbucks right after the iPhone came out. And we were amongst the first companies to create a mobile app. And it's not that dissimilar to the conversation, Jason, that you and I are having right now, which is like, huh, this is really interesting. Everybody's going to have a high-speed touchscreen computer that's connected in their pocket. And it can have these apps that anybody can create an app for. Like, I wonder what Starbucks could do to have a better relationship with its customers using that technology. It wasn't like, let's just do an app. Right, it wasn't like you know. Remember how I don't know if you remember back then, everybody was doing an app just to do an app or whatever. Like of it's, yeah. it's, and so I, I think of it in the same way, which is you know, the art of the possibility with this kind of magic. It goes back to like Satoshi and the blockchain, like and Bitcoin, like they're, they're you know the creation of an ownable, possessable digital asset. Uh, mm-hmm. They can have, you know, and then of course what Vitalik and Ethereum did with, you know, the, expanding it out into smart contracts and and and, and um, the Ethereum virtual machine idea and DApps and like that's that to me it gets me excited. Those kind of things and like using those as building blocks to have a better relationship with your customer. Do I think every brand is going to take advantage of this in the next ten years? In the next five years, absolutely, I do.
0: Yeah. Can you share any details around brands that are thinking about this?
1: Um, I mean, I can't share any details around brands that are thinking about this that aren't in the public eye already. But, you know, I definitely think that when I when I if you were to ask me right now, who's doing the most interesting stuff? um, uh, I'm biased. So Starbucks, Nike, Dot Sloosh combined with what they're doing with Artifact and just the way that they're the way that they're approaching the space is just really smart. So I'm really proud of what Starbucks is doing excited about what Nike's doing. I mean, let's be honest, like Top Shot and NFL all day and, and what the NBA and NFL and Dapper are doing is pretty cool. Like they, they, you know, they started this whole thing. It got kind of mixed up with how a lot of people graduated from that into kind of the speculative nature of, of PFP projects on OpenSea. But, you know, tip my hat to Dapper and Top and the NBA and NFL for what they're doing there. Like utility, storytelling, collectability, Um, rewards, you know, challenges and set completions. That's really interesting. Um, You know, I think I read something about NHL is coming out with something that they're doing with Sweet. Uh, I think that um, uh, the, um, uh, you know, and I'll I'll go old school in the NFT world for a second. And that's going back about a year or two, which is um, uh, I really think what the hundreds does and Bobby hundreds and the Adam bomb squad yeah. It's like, like, he's just, he and they at the hundreds and what they're yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just like, you know, I mean, nobody knows more, literally nobody knows more about thinking about like collectability and community and fashion and flexing. And like, and he's just done an amazing job of like thinking about atom bomb squads and now they've got the Battams and then they have like token gated utility to exclusive access to early drops or certain merchandise or collabs. Like, like all day long
0: tip my hat to Bobby. What do you have any thesis on what happens to like the OG I know you have to jump in a minute or two here but yeah. like what what happens to like the OG NFTs where there is no utility and there's no utility be, and there won't ever be utility like the the punks of the world. Do I my thesis and this is obviously you know my
1: personal best guess of course is that punks and apes and um you know art blocks Mm -hmm. and yeah yeah, well yeah i mean maybe doodles as well like i there to me i would like and it's hard to know because certain things like punks if they just leave punks alone yuga and i'm guessing art blocks is kind of in this category maybe x copies in this category and some others like like, then they become, like, just amazing, like, Warholian collectible art. And they've I got do. provenance. I see why Doodles
0: would not be in that same group. Yeah, I, I I mean, it, I it, it depends.
1: No, yeah. but Doodles is interesting. Doodles and Bored Apes are kind of a crossover in the sense that they're, like, they're going to – I think they're going to be given provenance and collectibility for the fact that they were, like, amongst the earliest, most collected and coveted, I'll call it, art they they're more like the michael jordan rookie card now it'd be like the michael jordan rookie card and then all of a sudden but there's a company behind it that could potentially add value collaborations and do things so like they might have like a doodles and a board eight between metaverse collaboration i think they might have the best of both worlds they might be able to like
0: like it's like would you rather have a honus wagner that does literally nothing or would you rather have a michael jordan but like you it's less rare, but you can then go meet Michael Jordan once a year and have dinner or something. There's utility. Correct. Or it becomes an access
1: pass to get like the next Jordan thing that Nike comes out with or whatever. Like there's, there's, I don't know the answer. Honestly, Jason, I don't think anybody can know. Does that enhance the, the ultimate provenance and collectability of just the token or does that hurt it? My guess is it, it's a little bit of both and it depends on how they execute. And Mm -hmm. if they become, I mean, if you study the, I've been studying Jordan uh, sneakers and I'm not an expert, but like they, you know, if you look at the history from the Jordan one up to the Jordan 22 or wherever it ended or ends, I don't even know, but like it actually, you have to like follow his career. And there were times where like, like what he was doing on the court affected the collectability of the shoe. And so it's, it's interesting. Right. So like, to some extent, we'll just have to wait and see uh but i i you know to me like you know punks and apes and some other stuff like i i can't imagine they're not coveted and collectible in you know as because you know there's only a few million people on the planet that have ever bought or sold an nft so um we're to say we're early to use that sort of like cliche is uh an understatement
0: yeah Anyways, man, I know you got to a hard to stop here. Great conversation. Appreciate you coming on and sharing some details. Congrats on uh, the big race today. Congrats on everything you've done to Starbucks. Um, yeah, man, it was awesome. And yeah, we'll put links in, into the show notes and forum3.com and, and all that kind of good stuff. So
1: Yeah, thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me on. Uh, sorry I had to go be only so quick and I'm happy to come back anytime if you want.
0: Awesome, man. really enjoyed it. Take
1: care, man.
2: We have a great uh, interview upcoming for you all, uh, with the founder and CEO of DYDX, Antonio. Antonio, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate you, uh, you know, spending some time and hopping on here with us. But really, the the kind of the meat of what we wanted to hit on today is DeFi's role in regaining the trust of the industry, uh, given the FTX collapse that we've we've seen over the past couple couple weeks now, and and really how DEXs are built uh, around transparency and kind of like and, and what uh, you know how these models are really built to avoid these exact situations that we're seeing it play out in FTX. Uh, So I'd love to uh, give you the floor to give yourself a brief little intro, and then if you could lead that into kind of just giving us a a recap of what happened with FTX uh, in your eyes.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So first, maybe a quick background on DYDX before we dive into FTX. So DYDX is one of the leading decentralized exchanges. We trade about a billion dollars a day every day on DYDX, and we're unique compared to most decentralized exchanges. In that we're focused on more advanced financial products like financial derivatives so we've been around for a little over five years now we're kind of one of the ogs in the DeFi space um, but yeah we've been experiencing some really big growth recently um, and are just kind of excited about the future of the dex industry overall so kind of zooming in on what happened with ftx i think none of this is super proprietary information, but just giving you my view on what happens at a thousand foot view. So I think it mostly started with some negative backlash against SBF and FTX against some of the policy stuff that was going on. Um, So I won't go into too much detail in kind of the overview of what happened on the policy side, but suffice it to say, he was advocating for some policy that, could potentially have had pretty negative effects for DeFi and DYDX and a bunch of others had kind of flagged this as something that could be really problematic. And I think the industry jumped on this in a pretty big way. And just, I think it's been really interesting to see how much support there's been for DeFi, both in kind of the overall brand and narrative of crypto. Um, And it's really good to see that people continue to be really excited about what DeFi means for the industry long term, and see that as something that's really valuable to protect. But back to FTX and and SBF. So he was advocating for this bill to be passed, the DCCPA, um, which had this kind of provision in it that effectively treated DeFi exchanges the same way, more or less, as centralized exchanges. And we, and a lot of other people in the industry think that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because it's fundamentally new technology and even if a lot of the platforms wanted to comply, there probably wouldn't have been a path for them to do that under the way the legislation was currently written. So he got a ton of backlash against this. And I think this was kind of the beginning of the end in terms of exposing some of the flaws in the brand narrative around SBF and FTX. And I actually think that was really important. And probably the second part wouldn't have happened without this first part. But that was kind of the first part and that was about a week or two before the ultimate collapse of ftx then fast forward another week and this uh, i think it was the block article um, or, or somebody else had effectively leaked the balance sheet of alameda trading alameda i'm sure everybody knows at this point is kind of the sister hedge fund of ftx and this kind of raised a lot of questions about well, is Alameda solvent? So this seems like they're holding a bunch of these not super liquid assets as collateral and making a lot of loans based off of them. And people were making at the time, seemingly a lot of conspiracy theories about how this could potentially relate to FTX. A lot of those conspiracy theories ended up being true, right? We didn't know that at the time, um, but people were questioning, oh, is FTX solvent? Um, how much exposure could they potentially have to this? And fast forward a few more days, and then the really big thing that started happening is people started losing confidence in FTX. um, And that resulted in this run on the bank situation where tons of people started withdrawing their funds from FTX. I forget what SBF said the total amount requested to be withdrawn from FTX was, but it was a lot, probably on the order of like 50% of the entire assets on the exchange. And there should have been no problem for them to handle, right, if they had just had all of the funds sitting there in cold storage or something secure like that. But that wasn't what was going on, clearly. Um, And I think fast forward one or two more days, and we didn't hear anything from SBF or FTX for a day. And everybody was like hey, what's going on? Um, And keep in mind, all of this was pretty much just playing out on crypto Twitter and in a few crypto native publications as well. But still at this point, most people thought that FTX was totally solvent. There were still some rumors, but the things I was seeing most people say were like, hey, this is pretty sketchy, but yeah, 99.9% chance FTX is solvent, right? (laughs) But still, this is a little bit sketchy. Um, And then I think the bombshell tweet the next morning was SBF tweeting that they were getting acquired by Binance. And I saw this, so I woke up and I think it was morning uh, on the East Coast at the time. And I was like, holy hell, like, what the heck, (laughs) how how could this possibly have happened? Um, I thought it was a joke at first, to be honest, (laughs) kind of a bad joke. But then I saw CZ's tweet effectively confirming it from the other side that, at least at that point in time, they were planning to acquire FTX. And then that was just one of the most shocking days I can remember in my entire eight or so year career working in crypto. Um, And I think if we zoom out and give a little bit of context to this moment, too, I think it was really significant because of the amount of trust and brand value that FTX and SBF had built up at that point. I think they had made it a huge point to be one of the leading narratives in crypto. Like they were putting themselves out there in Washington, like I mentioned before, in a really big way. Um, They're running a bunch of ad campaigns. Obviously, SBF himself was doing a really good job building his personal brand in crypto. And it was a really concerted effort to kind of become the main narrative in crypto. And I think that's really interesting how much people, how much just kind of brand value and stock people put in FTX, almost even beyond the amount of volume and adoption that they had. I don't mean to, to kind of belittle the amount of traction they had. They were one of the biggest exchanges in crypto. But, you know, they were trading relatively similar volume to like an OKX or a Huobi or something like that. And they had way more brand value, almost to the level, potentially even more than the level of a Binance who had 5x more, you know, enterprise value volume, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I think, and I'll stop there in the story. We can keep going if it's of interest, but, uh, I think this was certainly one of the most shocking days I can remember in crypto um and i think has a ton of downstream effects both for DeFi and the rest of the industry
4: what do you think the long-term ramifications of all this is for centralized exchanges do you think maybe they'll try and incorporate like self-custodial accounts or do you think they're just way behind the curb and all the activity is going to migrate to DeFi? what are your thoughts
3: there try to integrate self-custodial accounts at some point i think that's pretty far down the line Um, probably five to ten years down the line, if I had to guess, and potentially even never. Um, I do see some positive movement from centralized exchanges in terms of transparency, specifically around things like exchanges stepping up and doing proof of reserves. Slight tangent, but I think some of the proof of reserves as they currently stand are, are a step in the right direction, sure, but they are a bit problematic as well in that they really don't tell the whole story, right? Um, even if Binance says they have, you know, I don't remember exactly what the amount is, but say $10 billion of crypto or whatever the case may be, you know, how do you know that that sums up to all of the balances on the exchange? Um, and even if you know what the some of the balances on the exchange are, you don't know what the liabilities of the exchange were. So even if FTX had done this, you wouldn't have been able to see their liabilities to Alameda or whoever else they had. Um, So it really wouldn't have solved kind of the root problem here. That being said, I think the move towards transparency and the industry demanding that is a positive step. Um, I think longer term, and this is kind of what I talked about to the DYDX team right after this happened. Obviously, this gives me a ton more conviction in what we're building in DYDX and in DeFi more broadly that's always been the goal is to try to build a financial system that is transparent, that is secure and where this kind of stuff just fundamentally can't happen. Right. And I think it's, unfortunately, a lot of times takes times like this for people to realize that that's the case. Um, I think just humans are really bad at predicting tail risks and even kind of understanding tail risks. Right. Um, but things like exchange blow ups, things like security hacks, uh, just are, you know, 10x worse than the kind of positive value you might get out of using a slightly better, incrementally better product. Um, So I think it's really important that the crypto industry does move more towards DeFi over time. That being said, I still think that is a little ways away. I like to think we're at the forefront of pushing forward what's possible on the product side with DeFi at DYDX. Um, but even for us, I, I think it's probably five to 10 years from now until DeFi starts really competing with CeFi head to head from like a metrics perspective. Um, I just think that this technological change takes longer than people think. And I actually think that's kind of the root cause behind a lot of the price action, behind a lot of the hype action that we sp- see in the space overall. Right. Like, I think the narratives in crypto almost from the very beginning have been right, basically. Like, you can be your own bank. That like, absolutely was a real narrative that has played out with Bitcoin. With DeFi, it's like, you can be your own exchange. We can create this financial system that's based on code. And we're getting there. There's some really useful products like DYDX, Uniswap, Compound Aave and others that exist right now. Yes, they don't have the metrics that centralized products have. Yet. Um, and I think that kind of makes this dynamic play out where, you know, there's a new narrative that's fundamentally, fundamentally enabled by a new technology, but then the technology kind of sucks. Then like people get excited about it, right? But then the technology kind of sucks. So people are like, Oh, this is shit. Like, you know, dump all the prices, you know, DeFi, DeFi sucks. Like I'm out. Um, and then a little bit more time goes on and like the next generation of products are built and people are again, like, oh, wow, like this could be the future, but then people get too excited about it. And then it, you know, booms and busts and booms and busts. But directionally, it's up and to the right. And I think we've seen that with crypto since the early days. And now we're kind of seeing that play out with DeFi as well. Um, but zooming back in, what does this? does the FTX debacle mean for DeFi in the short and medium and long terms? I think long term, it's really positive. And like I mentioned, does really speak to the need for what we're building. I think in the short to medium term, um, It could potentially well, it definitely will be negative for crypto overall, just there's going to be overall a lot fewer people trading crypto as people lose faith in the industry. There could potentially be some negative regulatory backlash on both centralized and even potentially decentralized exchanges. And I think it's generally just going to make it harder for everybody um, in the near to medium term, call it the next one to three years or so. Uh, but it makes me a lot more optimistic for the long term. And that's really what we've always tried to build for at DYDX.
4: Yeah, that actually seg- segues me well into the next question, which is, you know, with centralized exchanges, they're pretty sticky because like KYC and getting a bank account set up, like it's a big process. But then in DeFi, you know, you have open source code and, you know, there's increased competition because people can just fork it. And then you've also got um really low friction to move from one protocol to another and you know people vampiring attacking liquidity. How do you view actually creating a sticky product in DeFi? Um, and and how do you retain kind of a
3: moat? Yeah, it's a good question. I actually think it's pretty similar to the way you do it in centralized exchanges as well. You do it through brands predominantly, and that's not to say it's some like big marketing sham or something like that. I think the fundamental technology really plays into the brands, right? and that's what we've we're always talking about on these podcasts right we're sitting here saying yeah this is the future of finance that's governed by code it's transparent it's secure and that's brands right um it's kind of a, a concise encapsulation of why you might want to use these products so let's maybe take a specific example um and maybe a, a third party example that's not dydx but take something like uniswap um like why does why was uniswap way more successful than sushi swap Um, Now the products are like a little bit divergent, right, so maybe there's some differences from a product perspective, but right after SushiSwap forked Uniswap, and if anything, probably threw uh, more fuel on the fire with the token, the Sushi token, which came out before the Uni token, right, like why was that not successful? And I think it really comes back to brand. even right after the fork, Uniswap had a good amount, more volume. And I think that's just because people trusted the Uniswap brands. It was a website they knew, it was like a team and product that they knew. Um, And even fast forward to now, if you look at the amount of volume that's going through like a Uniswap.org, even compared to a DEX aggregator, there's more going through Uniswap.org which if you think about it as a product maxi, like actually doesn't really make sense because you get objectively better pricing by using a DEX aggregator than you do on Uniswap. No shade at all to Uniswap. I think they're the best uh, spot decentralized exchange, but I think it really speaks to the power of brands that they've been able to build as an example. Um, and I think it's really the, the same case if you look at something like an FTX, and that was kind of where I started my story, right? Because I think it's a really important backdrop to literally the fact that they were misappropriating user funds, they lost the faith of the community and their brand really started to, to suffer. And I think if you look at the, the companies that have been really successful for centralized exchanges, like Binance, first and foremost, they've done a great job of building up a brand, you know, CZ is always out here tweeting like safety first, safety first, like users first, users first. And of course, that's what you want to see if you're a trader in the space. Um, I think DYDX and decentralized exchanges more broadly can kind of do a 10x better job eventually of creating that brand. And it's not going to be with thousand person marketing deposits. It's because enough people are going to get it and they're going to understand, hey, this is a new financial system that's built on code, not on intermediaries. And that's like the best brand you can have from a transparency and security perspective. So that's how I think you really create a moat in DeFi and probably in crypto in general. Um, and I think it's actually probably more similar to a centralized exchange from like a go to market perspective than people realize.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even when the, in the in like the early days of the, the early days, like a couple of weeks ago when FTX was truly collapsing, right, we saw this you know, significant exodus of users moving their funds from centralized exchanges to their uh, self-hosted wallets. Uh, I know we saw six billion dollars of Ethereum and stablecoins leave exchanges over that period. Um, You know, and then the question is, well, where is this money flowing? Right. Uh, And if you guys have a great uh, metrics dashboard on your on your website and, you know, looking at that week starting November 6th, right. $10 billion of weekly volume, which is levels not seen since May, a 67% increase uh, in week over week active takers, and a 250% increase in week over week unique depositors. So you really see that, you know, when FTX really started falling apart, there was this demand for this transparent, trustless alternative, Um, and and it does come down to, you know, maybe this is the shift that the market needed. And like when you talk about short term versus long term trade offs, right? maybe this is like a a, you know some short-term suffering we needed to do for some long-term success and kind of shaking out some of these bad actors um and i guess you know really what i'd want to see i want to hear from you is you know when you think about what dydx needs to be like truly offering the same experience as a centralized exchange like what do you what are the things that you think are missing today um you know some of the things that Like a key component of a decentralized exchange, right, is liquidity. So, how do you think about getting like
3: reliable and deep liquidity
2: uh, on your protocol?
3: Yeah, that's been a big focus for us over the past year or two, and for the protocol more broadly. Um, One of the things, one of the interesting things that DYDX as a protocol has done, in since uh, the launch of the DYDX token, is kind of point liquidity mining at liquidity provision on the exchange. And for those who aren't aware, DYDX is not an automated market maker. It's an order book-based exchange. And that's pretty intentional because we feel it gives us the best ability to create really liquid and deep markets. Um, but it's a trade-off, right? It's not objectively better than automated market makers. And the trade-off the protocol is making here is that you require kind of more professional liquidity providers, basically crypto hedge funds, to step in and provide a lot of this liquidity. Um, and on centralized exchanges, they're normally incentivized to do this. Like the centralized exchange will do things like give them loans, potentially give them monthly rebates, potentially give them preferential fee tiers, all to kind of incentivize them to provide better liquidity on their exchange versus competitors. And that's kind of the approach we've taken as a protocol towards getting liquidity on DYDX as well. And with DYDX, we can actually do something that's super unique And that I mentioned before, in that we can point the liquidity mining or part of it directly at this liquidity provision. Um, And effectively, what was done is that there was a formula that was come up with that effectively scored the quality of liquidity. These professional liquidity providers were providing to the platform Um, and then you can use that formula. It effectively will give everyone a score like um, Wintermute gets like a 10 score for liquidity this epoch, or some other market maker gets uh, like a five. And then you can use that to divvy up the liquidity rewards, the token rewards that these players are getting. So there's literal incentives, um, and it's not exactly the same thing that centralized exchanges are doing, but we and others who kind of came up with this effectively use that as the, the background for how we think about this from first principles, like how can we incentivize liquidity providers through the protocol? Um, So that's kind of the first way. And then kind of zooming out and taking your question, like what does the protocol need to do overall to be able to compete more directly with centralized exchanges? I think there's a lot still to be done on the UI UX side. Um, Again, I like to think DYDX is really at the forefront of this. And one of the things that keeps me excited about building in DeFi and building on blockchain technology is that the speed of execution and, and the speed of improvement for blockchain technology has been exponential. Maybe it hasn't been as fast as some of us want, but it still has been exponential. Like we can process multiples, more transactions every year. Uh, the latency is lower, kind of the complexity of applications we can build on top of various blockchains is significantly higher year over year. Um, and I think a result of that is that whichever protocols want to be successful long term really need to keep building on the new technologies that continue to be multiples better than the old ones. Um, At DYDX, we've really taken this to heart and our current product, which has been live for over a year, I think almost a year and a half now, if not longer, is a layer two exchange. Um, We've been on layer two before most people even knew what it was um, and in partnership with Starkware. And that's really given uh, at least 10x, if not more, improvements to our product experience. It's given things like users can trade with no gas fees, right? And that's a huge improvement over paying $10 plus for every trade you might want to make. Um, it gives things like much lower latency. And we're really looking to continue that into the future. Um, we can dive a lot more into this uh in in a sec, but the biggest thing that we're working on right now is the next version of the protocol. And really the goal for us there is to keep a lot of the great performance improvements we've been able to get with our layer two protocol, um, but add full decentralization as well. And that's a really tough task, right? It's really tough to like people always talk about this trilemma of decentralization and, and scalability. Um, but it's tough to get everything that that you might want to have. Um, but really, we're trying to push forward and use some of the new technologies that are available to us. Like specifically, we're building the next version of the protocol V4 with our own Cosmos based blockchain um, and kind of moving off of the Ethereum landscape. And we can dive a lot more into that. Um, but we really feel like it gives us the best opportunity to potentially build the best possible product long term. Um, Saying just a little bit more about what DeFi needs to do, I think, from a product perspective, I think UI, UX is really critical. Um, It's just a lot of basic things, right? Like, how are we going to be competitive with Binance when, on a lot of platforms at least, people are still paying upwards of $10 in transaction fees per a single trade or action, right? That's ridiculous, right? That's clearly worse. Um, there are some things that are obviously better about DeFi, like the transparency, the security, even some UI things, like it's actually way easier to onboard to most DeFi platforms because you just connect your wallet. You don't have to go through this lengthy onboarding process of doing KYC, like setting up your 2FA for all these different accounts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think DeFi needs to lean into that and do more of that long term and kind of figure out these potentially 10x better ways that we can actually build better products through ease of onboarding, through things like composability then centralized exchanges and financial products can. And that's really something that we're looking to lean into at DYDX, but it does take time to build as the technology is still pretty nascent, right? I mean, decentralized exchanges were really just invented like six or seven years ago. Um, and fast forward to now, we're trying to compete with some of the biggest financial products in the world, and that's a tough task. But I think even the fact that we're in the conversation now um, in a big way, gives me a lot of hope for what's possible to build in the future.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I see Dan chomping at the bit to ask you about some, some of the V4 rollout details, but, uh, I want to ask you one question real quick. That's kind of boring, but, uh, got to get your take on it. What do you think the regulatory fallout from the FTX situation is and maybe how it pertains to DYDX?
3: yeah i mean i think the knee-jerk reaction from most regulators will be to over regulate the crypto space and absolutely there should be some regulation on the crypto space probably a good amount more than there is right now Um, the major distinction i think i and probably most people who understand what's going on in the crypto space would make is between centralized financial products and decentralized financial products right But I think there's a huge amount for us still to do on the education side for policy. And that's been something we're really trying to step up our game on at DYDX. Um, Actually, are just bringing on a head of policy. I'm spending some more of my own time on this and really just trying to approach it, not necessarily so much right now, at least as, hey, like we want these specific things to be passed or not passed, but more from an education perspective. And getting the word out there, right? Just literally saying exactly the same things that we're saying on, I'm saying on this podcast right now. Like, Hey, DeFi fixes this. If this were DYDX instead of FTX, there's no way Antonio could have, you know, went all the funds to some hedge fund and, and blown everyone's money, right? It's just fundamentally impossible. And the fact that that's the case, even though DeFi is super nascent. I think, makes it really exciting, potentially, for for a lot of regulators' objectives, right? And that's really the case that us and a lot of other really great people um, in the DeFi Education Fund, Blockchain Association, to name a few amongst others, are really trying to go out and do. Um, But all that being said, I think we're playing from behind here. And I think there is just a ton of scrutiny in on crypto from the entire world. I mean, I opened up my phone today and opened up the New York Times and literally the first thing was like FTX and, uh, you know, the New York Times talking about how they were misappropriating customer funds and all these things. And if you're a policymaker, you read the same news, right? And you look at that and you're like, holy shit, we need to regulate crypto. Um, and like I was saying, that's not necessarily a bad reaction, right? A lot of these, especially overseas exchanges, have been allowed to exist outside of the regulatory framework for a long time. Um, But the main thing I would ask and advocate for is that as a lot of this policy is being crafted, that it's at least done with the understanding of what DeFi offers. Um, I wrote kind of a long tweet thread uh, on this uh, a week or two ago, Um, but I was basically going through a lot of the core policy principles that uh, the CFTC puts into, like how clearinghouses are regulated. And they go through a lot of these principles and, you know, you think about regulation usually as what are literally are the laws. But I think if you go a level deeper, it's pretty interesting to try to understand that, right? And a lot of the principles are things that are really common sense. It's like, okay, the exchange should make sure that when it does a trade, both sides have the funds okay, like obviously we should do that. But like in CeFi, you need regulation to, to enforce that that's the case. Um, but a lot of these things are potentially 10x better in DeFi, right? It's like, okay, if you're Uniswap or the DYDX smart contracts, it does it by default. Um, or a lot of regulation pertains to transparency, like customers should understand where their funds are. Um, and the Custodians shouldn't like lend them out or do other sketchy things with them it's like, okay, this is like pretty simple, like we can all agree, like this should be the case. I think a lot of people in crypto kind of have the misassumption that it's like us versus the regulators or whatever. And I think, unfortunately, that has been the case in, in some ways. But it's really not the case long term, I think, and it's really not the case if both sides are able to kind of understand from first principles what the other side is trying to do. But I think even if that's the case, it does take a huge amount of legwork and a huge amount of effort to uh, convince people that that's the case and really educate them on, on what's possible and really what we and other really good people are trying to build in DeFi.
2: Yeah, there's definitely some irony there that you know if you're a centralized, or if you're a, you know a regulator and you're thinking about how we resolve or remedy this situation, you're like, oh well, we need how do we solve this? And, and the reality is, you know, we have teams in crypto that have been uh, building on uh, creating the code to exactly solve these problems. So you know, I'm glad to hear that you and your team are working on this because my I do fear personally that uh, we might get some overarching blanket regulation that kind of constricts us, constricts the uh, the growth of the industry. Of course, that's like my my bear case, but uh, yeah again really gra- glad to hear that we're pushing forward in the right d- direction there and before we kind of pivot over to some of the v4 DYDX exchange stuff i kind of want to get your take on how you view risk management of like listed assets so one of the theories i saw circulating in the heat of uh, the ftx collapse is how did alameda actually lose 10 billion dollars right that's just it's not it's not exactly it's not exactly an easy thing to do um and one of the theories out there was they actually acted as the insurance fund or the, the backstop in the liquidation mechanism Um, And, you know, so going back to earlier in May when we saw Terra Luna unwind, you know, the Luna price collapse was extremely rapid. Uh, We saw, you know, even one minute candles that were significant percent decreases. Uh, And so there's a theory that like this kind of put the initial hole uh, or or hole in the boat of Alameda. And so, you know, currently you guys have a vote live uh, on your governance platform to wind down the safety module, Uh, mostly around the proposals kind of talks about how it's mostly around, you know, more of like an illusion of safety. It's like if DYDX were to experience some issues, uh, then you know, the, the insurance fund likely would experience losses as well. And the tokens would kind of have to be swapped from DYDX tokens to USDC. Uh, so I'd love to just get your take on kind of how you see uh, building out a safety module. Is that something that's even necessary uh, and really just risk management around which assets get listed and how, uh, it, how the protocol is susceptible to these price movements?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So it's a great question and a really big and kind of deep technical topic here Um, on the first piece with kind of the financial stability of call it the derivatives contracts on FTX and other platforms. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly a theory at this point. I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case, but I would also guess that the bulk of funds that Alameda lost were more based on a lot of their venture investments and probably lending activities that they were doing. Just the notional value of a lot of these derivative contracts. I'd be surprised if it were high enough that just from bad liquidations or losing money on liquidations, they could have lost that much money. But that being said, like it absolutely is a risk. Um, And I think one that just takes a lot of financial modeling to look at what are the appropriate risk parameters to set for a lot of these financial contracts. We do a lot of work behind, and others do a lot of work behind the scenes to set those parameters effectively um, on DYDX. And I think the advantage of something like DYDX is, first of all, that it's transparent. I mean, I've said that a million times, but I'll keep saying it. Um, So at least you can see what all the parameters are on these contracts. You can see and verify exactly the balance of the insurance fund, et cetera, et cetera. And then also that anybody can kind of step in and help to govern a lot of these parameters on the protocol. And one of the interesting and I think exciting things about DYDX governance specifically is there's a lot of really good people that are participating in it right now. And a lot of people that really know what they're talking about, like some of the biggest participants in DYDX governance have been a lot of the trading firms and also a lot of the really good kind of more research focused Uh, firms that are looking at a lot of these DeFi protocols. Um, And I think just the fact that a lot of people can come together and express opinions, express positive opinions, express potential risks and negative opinions kind of bodes well for the future of risk management on a lot of these DeFi platforms. And I think we've seen that be the case for a while now. Um, Again, like the insurance fund on DYDX is totally transparent. um, And I think We lost something like $10,000 out of the insurance funds right after the FTX, the volatility after the FTX collapse. And to give people a sense of scope, the DYDX insurance fund, I think, has like $15 million in it right now. So it's like a really negligible uh, loss based off of that. Um, And it's all transparent, at least. Um, what you were talking about with kind of the DYDX safety pool as well, I think does play into this a little bit. That's slightly separate from setting appropriate and kind of safe risk parameters across the contracts themselves. Um, but kind of the original thesis behind having that fund was just to have some backstop liquidity um, and effectively funds to be able to step in, in the event that the protocol loses money and it eats through um, sorry, maybe taking a step back. There's like two different insurance funds on DYDX. The first insurance fund is really financially similar to how the insurance funds work for perpetuals on Binance, um, FTX, and other platforms in that they're paid into as people uh, get liquidated on the platform. So it sort of like slowly grows. And then if there are times when there's extreme volatility and you can't liquidate people fast enough, then that insurance funds will like drop, potentially drop in value. Um, this is a very rare occurrence. And like I was just mentioning, hasn't really happened very much at all on DYDX. Um, so that's the first insurance fund. That's not going anywhere. Second, like insurance fund is more of a protocol level insurance fund. Um, and on DYDX, the way this worked was pretty simple. There was a smart contract where users could stake DYDX tokens um, in exchange for some newly minted supply, basically liquidity mining, staking rewards on DYDX. And kind of the problem, and you alluded to this, um, that some people had raised on the governance forums is that it's reflexive kind of in a negative way. Right. So suppose there were, you know, God forbid a huge security vulnerability or just like some financial attack on DYDX and the protocol started losing a lot of money. Probably that would impact the token price. So at the time you need it the most the amount of funds like in this insurance pool um, that is all made up of DYDX tokens would go down and then people would see that there was a hack or there was an exploit or whatever. And then they would also see that, oh, hey, like, what is the insurance fund going to do in this situation? Probably it's going to sell off some of these DYDX tokens to try to repay back the protocol. So that would drive down the price even more. Um, and then it just kind of creates this vicious cycle where potentially you know, the price of the token goes down a lot. And even worse than that, the amount of funds that's our earmarks for kind of recapitalizing the protocol in this case could be less. Um, so I think like the first step, and this is kind of what's being discussed in the governance forums right now is potentially to remove this and potentially replace it with something better long term. And that's something we're thinking about and the, pro- the community more broadly is thinking about for, for V4. Um, but there still exists this kind of first level insurance fund Um, And of course, the DYDX and any token governance for this matter can kind of appropriate funds out of the community funds, however they see fit. So like even if there were some exploit or something like that, the community could still if they wanted to step in and, and recapitalize things without the literally just having funds locked in the insurance fund.
4: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And on the same topic of governance, like, I feel like no one's really figured that one out yet. And DYDX is kind of pioneering like a new governance structure with the subdials. Do you mind diving into that a little bit and also uh, explaining how that might fold into the DYDX chain in V4?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, just a disclaimer, uh, all of this thinking was more put out by the DYDX Foundation, which I'm not a part of, um, but that being said, I did read the blog post um, and have some decent understanding of it. So I think the high level idea that was kind of put forth and is still being discussed by the community is to have more, as you say, uh, sub DAOs to manage more different types of functions throughout the protocol. Um, the things the foundation was talking about in this post were things like potentially a growth sub So like, how could the protocol do marketing long-term? Oh, it probably makes sense to have some group of people that's overseen by the protocol to go out and be able to do that. Or how could the protocol do customer support long-term? Like clearly that's a really important part of any product. Um, but as the protocol really pushes forward towards not only decentralizing the product, but decentralizing the organization as well, um, I think this is a way th- to do it that makes a lot of sense, right? just kind of organizing these different functional groups that are pretty separate um, into kind of plug and play organizations, more or less, that can be owned and, and overseen by um, the DAO, like the, the open master DAO, if you will, of DYDX token holders themselves. Um, so I, I think there were some ideas like the growth one, the uh, customer support one um, there, I think also was a operations sub DAO that they proposed to kind of make it easy to make and, you know, administrate all the other DAOs because it's actually quite hard um, to like spin up all these legal entities. Like nobody really knows what it means to like be employed by a DAO yet, um so what does that mean um and how can we have just a lot of really plug and play infrastructure as a protocol for a lot of these sub dallas long term so i think it's still something that's being discussed and does have decentralization trade offs but i think it's a really interesting and kind of exciting way to pursue this like second, but also really important goal of decentralizing, not just the protocol, but the organization and call it just like group of people behind the protocol itself. Um, so I'm excited to, to see more discussion of that going forwards.
2: Yeah, we're still kind of feels like we're trying to uh, discover the silver bullet within D5. Like what the best governance model really does look like. Uh, we've seen uh, some good experimentation with with kind of what this sub model looks like. So I'm excited to you know see another protocol discussing really pushing that that forward. Um, but kind of like kicks us off into this the V4 section of this, which as Sam uh, alluded to earlier, I'm super excited to get into. Um, I know you all have been working on DYDX chain for a couple months now, and that's a pretty massive undertaking, kind of starting your own chain up from scratch. So I'd love to just get a general update on on how the last couple months have gone and and where you all stand with the the build today.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So we've probably been working on it for nine months plus at this point, point. Um, and fast forward to now, pretty much the entire team. At least the entire engineering and product team is laser focused on V4, um, which is the same thing as the DYDX chain. And as the name suggests, and as I mentioned before, the thing that we're building here is our own blockchain. And the way that we're doing that is developing based on the Cosmos SDK, um, which is kind of a plug and play way to spin up uh, your own blockchain. Um, I talked some about this in my initial blog post and on a couple different podcasts and stuff more around the time that was announced, so I won't go too deep into it right now unless that's of interest. Um, but the main reason that we decided to build our own chain is to decentralize really the core part that is centralized on DYDX v3 right now. And the core part that is centralized on DYDX v3 right now is the matching engine and kind of the order book. Um, we effectively run that in, in a centralized way through our company right now. The protocol in v3 is still totally uh, non-custodial and smart contract based, but we do run the order book and order matching engine for performance reasons. Um, you might ask, why do we do this? And the reason is that it's really hard to decentralize an order book in an order matching engine. And the amazing reason for that is because matching engines require a really high level of scalability. To kind of give you a sense um, on the DYDX v3 matching engine right now, we process about a thousand orders per second. Um and matching engines for platforms like Binance or like the New York Stock Exchange process orders of magnitudes more operations per second um, than we do. Um but we uh we, we you know wanted to fully decentralize the protocol. That's really aligns with the ethos of what we're trying to build and, and what makes sense for DeFi long term. So we kind of took a step back and thought about well, how can we at least attain an equivalent level of performance to the DYDX v3 matching engine right now with, call it on average, a thousand orders placed and canceled per second. Um, And we took a look around at all the different scalability solutions. Um, You know, right now we're built on top of Starkware, um, which is a layer two rollup on top of Ethereum. Looked at other layer two roll ups. We looked at scalable layer one chains like Solana and a few others. Obviously, we looked at building our own chain and we asked ourselves, hey, which of these platforms can support a 1,000 orders placed and canceled per second? And not only that, but with really low latency and also with ideally little or no gas fees, right? because market makers really don't want to pay a lot of gas fees just to be able to put quotes on the book. Um, and the answer we got back was none of them, not even close. <laughs> um, so we went back to the drawing board and we were like, okay, well, that's cool. Like We want to build this order book based decentralized exchange. And we can't do it on any blockchain, so what are we going to do? And the answer we came up with I think is pretty novel and we're pretty excited about and really is uniquely enabled by Cosmos, thus the story. Um, but the answer we came up with is to build an off-chain but decentralized order book and matching engine. And the way we're doing that is we're coding it directly into uh, the open source software of the validator, sort of as like a sidecar that they run. Um, And this is really uniquely enabled by Cosmos, right? Because you, um, as the developers, effectively uh, can write into the open source software what the validators are going to be doing, right? And some of the things the validators are doing is normal consensus stuff. um, And some of the things could be whatever else you want. So it could be like coming to consensus on what the orders placed and canceled should be. But if you do it this way, all of the orders that are placed and canceled never actually make it on chain. They still are decentralized in the fact that they're being stored by the validators, but it's really the same concept as a mempool um, in Ethereum and any other blockchain for that matter, where the order book only exists in the mempool and then only the matched orders actually ever go into the consensus version of the state of the chain. And this is really important because on order books, roughly 1% or less of orders ever even get matched. So just doing this gives us like a 100x increase in scalability um, without sacrificing any decentralization, with getting literally free gas costs, right? Because you don't have to pay gas if things never even get mined on chain. Um, And it was just an overall 10x potentially better product experience for us to build. So that's kind of the core thing that we have been building for these past couple months. We actually just earlier, uh, you know, this morning released some news that we have completed what we're terming milestone two of the development process. And milestone two effectively is an internal working version of the core trading experience. Um, So we have this testnet up and running internally right now. Um, There are bots that are placing orders that are canceling orders. The validators that we have running internally for the testnet are coming to consensus on the orders that are placed. Um, there's things like liquidations, et cetera, happening. Um, but, yeah, we're pretty excited about the progress that we have made so far um, and happy to dive into to a lot more of that and kind of where we're going in the future. But you're absolutely right. Building your own chain is pretty hard mode when it comes to development. There's just quite a lot to do. Um, just a lot of things you wouldn't normally expect, maybe just to give one specific example of that. Another thing that we're building in addition to the core validator software is what we're calling an indexer, which is sort of an entire another layer that exists from the blockchain itself. Um, it's sort of something similar to a really custom built version of like an Alchemy or an Infura or something like that. But the really cool part about this is that the indexer is going to be open source as well. So anybody can run an indexer. There could be reference indexers that probably some of the uh, front ends will use, but it's actually a good bit more decentralized even from like an indexing perspective than pretty much anything else that's out there right now. Um, but the indexer will do things like stream all of the data about what trades have happened on the chain, what orders have been placed, et cetera, et cetera. And then it'll translate it into a format that's really custom made for DYDX. And what do I mean by that? It'll literally literally create a REST API that's really similar to a centralized exchange, but for all of the data that exists on the blockchain. So there could be like a REST API that's like, get my orders placed for like, you know, the, the past... Uh, year or whatever, um, and it'll return it. And it's just a much more efficient much better product experience to go through this versus going directly to the chain itself for all of the read-level queries. Um, that's actually like a huge undertaking. Building the indexer is like almost as complicated as building the blockchain itself, um, but something that goes on a little bit more behind the scenes and is something that we're really focused on to drive the best possible product experience. But... There's quite a lot to build, but we're making good progress. TLDR.
2: Well, as a data junkie myself, hearing the the creation of the indexer really that's that seems to be like a novel novel creation that you know makes data more accessible. Uh, and as somebody who's like addicted to building qu- queries on blockchain data, that gets my interest going. Uh, but I do want to dive a little deeper on this uh, the order book you're, you're creating, right? So if if nothing's ever committed to chain, uh, then would that mean that every uh, validator would be holding like a slightly different uh, order book or would they all somehow still be similar?
3: You're right. Every validator will have a slightly different version of the order book. We feel like that's a really acceptable trade-off because the latency should pretty be pretty low for the propagation of a lot of these orders. And then it's also the incentives are really aligned with the validators too, right? like the validators want to have more orders because they make money when the trades happen. So they like actively are incentivized to store better liquidity. Um, it is a slightly, you know, fundamentally different like trading experience from trading on just one version of the order book. But we've talked to a lot of the firms that are currently trading on v 3 right now and some users um, and still feel like we'll be able to make a really great trading experience, even with, this effectively, uh, non, you know, slightly different versions of the order book running on different validators.
4: Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. Cause whenever I hear, you know, mempool and then validator set in the same sentence, my mind jumps to MEV. So with your order book model, is that going to play a role? And if so, does the MEV flow to DYDX token holders in the revamped tokenomics?
3: So this is still something we're thinking about, uh, in pretty early stages to be transparent in the development process right now. Um, not to write it off, but I think MEV is a problem on any decentralized exchange and is a really, really hard problem to solve. Um, but I think, again, building our own blockchain does give us better tools to be able to attack it than building on a more generalized chain where like, the validators really aren't incentivized at all to care about your application You know, in particular compared to other applications. Um, and then again you just don't have as much influence over them because you don't have anything to do with the consensus process. Um, So I don't want to go too much into it right now because it's really something we're still thinking through but we're exploring a lot of different paths. I think one of the things that we're thinking about at least uh, starting with is more transparency as to what the validators are doing Um, and I think if you again try to make sure the stakers are aligned with the overall success of the protocol. And then you combine that with giving a lot of transparency in terms of what's going on on the validators. Um, And it's hard to do, but if you look at things like validators, even before they mine a block committing to what the ordering of the transactions is, um, sort of in real time, or you look at things like what's the average execution price, or like the average amount of slippage you might get on validator A versus validator B, you can sort of run some analytics where you're like, oh, validator A is um, you know probably doing a good amount of MEV, so let's adjust our stake weights against them and kind of make the incentives for the validators, at least in the long term, not make sense for them to do MEV and try to just make them more aligned with the protocol overall. So that's kind of the first layer of attack. Um, the second layer of attack, again, we're really starting to just think through at a high level um but cosmos enables some pretty interesting things in terms of kind of collaboration between validators there's basically this step in the cosmos and and tendermint consensus process where you can get like effectively all the other validators to like comment or like give data or like approve or disapprove what's in a certain block um so just as a high level thought we're kind of exploring are there ways for all the validators to kind of act together in concert to come up with, like, what is the actual state of the matches that happen versus just like literally whoever the leader is um, kind of proposing, you know, you know, whatever they want. So those are the kind of ways we're thinking about attacking it long term. Um, but definitely it's still a work in progress and I think is still more in the research phase for both us and, and other chains.
2: Yeah, it's cool to, you know, when you, when you think about like building on an app specific chain, you get this extra de- design space of the validator set. So using them uh, to kind of like build out what your chain can do or what your protocol can do and how you design that uh, is super exciting to see someone like pushing forward and, and you know, pushing what's what can be done uh, in, that, in that side of the equation. Um, of course, leaving a general purpose chain, you do have some trade-offs, of course. And so like on a general purpose chain, such as Ethereum, you already have this massive base of users that already has assets that are coming. Compatible with your protocol. Uh, so, how do you guys think about uh, like the, solving the bridging problem and moving assets onto DYDX chain? And does the you know USDC uh, and Circle chain coming to the Cosmos? Does that kind of uh, do you plan to use that in any way? Or I'm just curious to get your take on how you think about bringing in users to ask. Yeah,
3: absolutely. So first of all, it's a lot easier for us versus a spot decentralized exchange because we only need the collateral asset or potentially in the future assets that we'll support to, be, to exist on the chain. And then we can just synthetically create all the other derivative contracts people want to trade off those assets. So right now, DYDX is single collateral in that we only support USDC as collateral on V3. And at least for the launch of E4, that'll almost definitely be the case as well, that only USDC is supported as collateral. Um, thinking about multi-collateral for the longer term, but probably not out of the gates. Um, but yeah, we absolutely do plan to use, barring some catastrophe or something, the newly to be creative, uh native USDC chain that's being created in the Cosmos ecosystem. We actually have been talking quite a lot with Circle um, and some of the other players like uh, Zaki and some of the core Cosmos team to really try to push for this to happen um, because we really saw it as a huge security and also decentralization kind of win for the Cosmos ecosystem to have something like this. Um, and it's going to make it just a much better product experience on DYDX. So we definitely will use it. Um, and I think there are two potential things we're thinking about for bridging right now as to how users are going to get assets over to the DYDX chain. Um, the first thing is a little bit more long term. We're trying to push on Circle and USDC to build this sooner rather than later. Um, but effectively what they're thinking of building, and, and they released a public blog post about this not too long ago, so I can talk about it, um, is kind of their own bridge more or less where they'll support or at least help facilitate supporting, um, users exchanging USDC on one chain and then kind of attesting to that fact where like you could like burn your USDC on Ethereum basically and then they'll pass you a message which lets you mint uh, USDC on whatever other chain. So it's sort of like a bridge, um, but it's really specifically tailor-made just for USDC. Um, so we'd like to use that long term, not exactly sure when that will be ready. The other thing we're considering starting with is using another bridge. Um, it's not sure exactly which one yet, but potentially something like Axelar, um, to allow USDC to be, to be bridged from Ethereum and potentially other chains. Um, and the cool thing about using the bridge is you can use the bridge. So you basically bridge Ethereum or USDC from like Ethereum um, and then we'll bridge it over probably to like Osmosis or some other chain like that that has a spot decentralized exchange. And then we'll trade it for native USDC. And this will all happen in the course of like a couple minutes. So like, yes, you're using the bridge, but you only have a few minutes of exposure to it, right? Um, and then you swap it for the native USDC. And then that can be transferred to the DYDX chain using IBC, which is very secure and decentralized. Um, so this all sounds fairly complicated, but we're effectively planning to build all of this in behind the scenes into just the DYDX clients themselves. Um, so from a user perspective, it's actually going to be pretty sweet. I think um, we'll effectively just have a way that users can click one button or even potentially send funds to an address um, and it'll look like a centralized exchange. it will be like, okay, click to deposit to DYDX, you know, you go to DYDX.exchanger exchange, or whatever site, whatever domain it's hosted on, and then you click deposit and it just gives you an address and you send funds and then like magically, like the funds show up in DYDX. Um a couple minutes later, which is similar to the experience you have on a centralized exchange. But what's going on behind the scenes is all of this kind of magic um, where it's like you use the bridge and then you mint native USDC and then you transfer it via IBC um, to the DYDX chain. But all of this can happen through code rather than user steps that you might have to do. Um, so we're really putting a lot of work again behind the scenes to go into the product experience. And I think you know, we really just are trying to build a more professional product, right? Um, I think the state of DeFi, maybe just dooming out a little bit right now, is still pretty early and fairly primitive in some ways. Like it's just clearly a bad product experience to ship your users off to like, okay, first of all, like go off into some other bridging site and then like manage to bridge your funds to our chain and then like second of all, I hope you come back like fingers crossed, to, like actually use the, the funds on the other side. Like, that's terrible. Um, it's not to say bridges are bad, right? It's more just like the clients themselves um, should support being able to, to use them behind the scenes and users really shouldn't even have to know what's going on in, in such a big way. So it's really not going to be so much of a product experience that I think users are used to in DeFi. Like, I think the users that are using DeFi now. Do you kind of understand this right you know you could have usdc on polygon or ethereum or whatever else and people sort of understand that but if you're onboarding or trying to explain defi to your friend you're like oh man like you can have usdc on this chain or that chain and there's like all this different stuff going on i think that's sort of a relic of the times and that that's clearly a pretty bad user experience and i don't think will exist so much long term um, but that's kind of a bet that we're taking with the on the product side with v4 And really the goal is to try to build something that feels like a centralized exchange in the ways that centralized exchanges are good, right? But still has a lot of the advantages of a decentralized exchange in the ease of onboarding, in the transparency and security, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And it's hard to build, like there's a ton of stuff behind the scenes. It's like, oh, now we gotta go integrate with all these different bridges and we gotta do all the IBC transactions for you and all this other stuff. But I think that really is what's required to build a great product experience and thinking about the user journey from, from end to end. And that's what we're trying to do.
4: Yeah, absolutely. That sounds incredible. I'm like extremely excited to, to check it out whenever uh, you guys launch the V4 chain, but I guess my last question, cause you've already been so generous with your time and then Dan I'll pass it back over to you if you have anything else, but, um, you've seen a lot of success with GMX's token model and like, you know, returning some of the platform fees back to token stakers or LPs, is that something I believe I saw you tweet at one point. That's something you're considering, but, uh, I'm curious. Curious to get your thoughts on that and, and you know, maybe how much,
3: how much value would be passed back to uh, token stakers or LPs in that scenario. So first of all, it's really not something that's up to me. So regardless of what I want, it's kind of up to the community at this point. Um, not even kind of like it's absolutely up to them. Um, I can express my views on what maybe should happen for, for DYDX and DeFi long term, but it's really not up to me. That being said, I I think there does exist the requirements for a layer one token, call it, on the DYDX chain. Um, And just economically, that layer one chain needs to be used for staking, right, to validators. Um, And the main way validators are going to be operating and be incentivized is through the trading fees on the platform. Um, So, potentially, you know, those could potentially go to whatever the layer one token is um, split between the validators and the stakers as well. Um, so I think that makes a lot of sense long-term, but yeah, in general, I think it's more up to the community as to what happens with the DYDX token long-term.
2: Yeah, I definitely think that makes a ton of sense. And just given that, you know, when you move off of a general purpose chain uh, like Ethereum, where you have more of a, a governance token, you know, then you move into this uh, proof of stakes model where your your base asset or your uh, layer one token really does need to uh, kind of help secure the chain. Um, and so. you it, there's definitely different trade-offs and a different design space when thinking about how to like build out a, a monetary premium for that asset. Um, do you think it's like almost more complicated uh, or just like, I guess, maybe maybe that's not the right word, but just like a different uh, thought process that you need to roll through because uh, there already is a DYDX token uh, and then like you're kind of like backing into the, the L1 chain itself?
3: I think it's slightly different and it's really not just the token. I think it's a much bigger deal actually that DYDX exists as a platform and like literally an exchange you can trade on on a different platform, like on layer two on Ethereum. And not only does it exist, but it has quite a good amount of traction so far. Right. Like we have around a billion dollars a day being traded and that's some pretty real activity. Um, I think there's positives and negatives to that. I think it's you know, going back to brands gives us a much better brand. Um, as a protocol to be able to go out and launch our own chain successfully, right? Um, Probably, like, validators are already going to be pretty excited about uh, the DYDX chain, whereas if we were just some random new project launching from zero to one, it may be a lot harder for the protocol to go out and find validators to support it. Um, But at the same time, it makes it harder as well, um, because just the level of execution from a product perspective, the level of security that users demand, because absolutely there is a lot of TV on the platform and a lot of notional value that's being traded in the contracts is pretty high. And we take that pretty seriously. Um, so I think that requires us as the developers to do a lot of internal audits, adhere to really high testing standards. Um, but luckily we have a lot of experience doing that as a development team. I think the biggest thing we have going for us at DYDX is that at least I really think that we have the best, if not one of the best, development teams um, for anyone in DeFi. And I think that just gives us a lot more flexibility in terms of what we want to build long term. We've built a lot of stuff, right? We've built layer one contracts for margin trading, for lending, for derivatives trading. We are the leading... The D- D- app on uh, layer two right now. Fast forward to what we're building now, building our own Cosmos SDK chain and Go. Um, and I think just that level of flexibility and the experience building all these things along the way goes a long way in terms of just having really good standards for development. And I think that is really something that's really, really critical. And actually, I think people realize its importance, but still underrate it in terms of like how important it is for a DeFi platform, Um, because I think that's where all of the security comes from. And there is a lot of this stuff, we've talked about the indexer, um, we've talked about the, the bridging behind the scenes and there are a number of other things like that, that really goes on in the background, but that are required to make a really great product experience. So I think there's positives and negatives to it, but overall I think it's mostly a positive.
2: Awesome. Well, you know, Antonio, we really thank you for taking some time and coming on and just kind of talking about, you know, the uh, broader market conditions and, you know, ultimately what that means for DYDX and what's also to come. Uh, you know, you you're an OG builder in the space, along with your team, you've been pushing forward this great protocol, uh, and so really excited to see uh, as you continue to push the bounds of what's possible with the Cosmos uh, SDK chain. Uh, so thanks again for your time, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.
3: Thanks so much for having me, guys, and I really appreciate the great questions.